Welcome to Real Life, the program that talks about the life of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond. The people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate with your host, broker associate of Sotheby's International Realty, John Christopher. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. And today I have with me Nate Scar. Hi, Nate. How are you today? Hey, John. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me today. Oh, thank you for coming on the program. I know you're you just travel all over the world. Uh, Nate, I forgot to say that you're also the director of luxury real estate for Heritage Auctions, correct? That's right. That's I'm the director of luxury and architectural real estate for Heritage Auctions. Yes. Oh, fantastic. So but before we talk about luxury real estate and auctions, let's talk about you. You have a okay. Calif- uh, okay. You have a California broker's license. Uh, were you did you grow up in California? No, actually I was born in Chicago to uh my father was a cop and my mom was a graphic artist. And so I had the best of both worlds. I had the the creativity and the uh the the structure. Oh, wow. So, okay. So tell us about your journey from Chicago to basically um, your, your main office is in Dallas, correct? That's right. My Dallas, uh, my world headquarters is in Dallas. Um, I, I started the, uh, the real estate division for Heritage in, in 2013. Uh, before that, I was working with a smaller boutique firm based in North Carolina. Um, and still, it was, it was more or less a remote job where I was traveling all over the United States to, you know, the, the, to where my clients' properties were. And so it, it started uh, about 20 years ago. I started in the real estate auction business. Uh, and and now, now here we are in 2021 in one of the hottest seller's markets that we've ever seen. Wow. And so it was it was been quite a progression seeing how the market has changed just in the past 20 years and just how auctions are becoming more and more popular with with uh, with those with unique and, and valuable properties. So what led you into that? I mean, did somebody, did you have like a mentor and say, Hey, Nate, uh, this is something you should get into. It's really lucrative. So, no, I was always fascinated with auctions in general. And, and uh, right out of college, I was a, a, a trader for one of the largest wealth management firms. And, and I was working with high, high net worth individuals working on their, you know, their, their institutional investments or equity investments and recognizing that a lot of my clients had illiquid assets in real estate. And so, of course, during 2005 through 2008, I saw a shift of assets from traditional investment type assets to real estate. And so the problem with investing in real estate is it's illiquid. And so one of my, one of my friends from college, his family started a small boutique auction firm. And I was fascinated from the beginning. It was something that, you know, it was, it was, it was, interacting with buyers and or interacting with sellers and helping them kind of understand the, the value of their asset that you know, it's hard to comp. And so a lot of the properties that we're working at working with are, are those, those hard to sell, uh, uh, hard to comp properties, you know, that are unique, that are architecturally significant, that are, that are, are, are larger than the neighbors, or there's something else significant about it. And so how do you monetize something like that in a short period of time? And, and, and the, the, yeah. the traditional thought process was essentially a reverse auction. They start at a high price and then systematically lower the price over every, every, every quarter or every couple of months until they catch the market. The auction model is, is, goes the opposite direction. We start at a low price and go up and we'll, get to, we'll find the market and the market will determine the value. It just will take a much shorter amount of time. 
And so with an auction, we're able to schedule that date. Well, it sounds like that. I, I love that uh, model, but it sounds like it's, it's ideal, especially for estates. In other words, um, where the kids inherit a property or somebody, you know, somebody gets a property and they live in some other area and they don't want to go through the process because they say, let's just get our money and move on. That's right. And so that is some of our clients are those estates. One of my last sales that we had was uh, we were working with uh, with uh, the old folk singer uh, estate uh, for Trini Lopez. He's saying, if I had a hammer and lemon tree, uh, well, unfortunately, he passed away back in last August and his 17 heirs inherited his property in California. Well, most of his heirs lived in Texas, had only really visited Palm Springs where the property was. And they weren't really sure of the value, but they 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 had a specific date that they needed the property sold by, and you know the traditional methods at the time weren't going weren't going to prove to them the results that they needed because the market was was fluctuating so much at the time due to COVID, and so we we were able to schedule the auction date, which gave the property a lot more shelf life. And so as you know, with with traditional real estate, you know, especially in the past year, you know, properties go on the market. And then they get flooded with offers in the first 24 hours. Problem with that is that the majority of those offers are coming in with different terms and uh, that are set by the bear. And it's, it's a lot of pressure on, on everybody to get the deal done in that immediate 24-hour period. Auction, what we do is we give the buyers 30 days to figure out exactly what they want or how much they want to buy. They do their due diligence on the property and we're able to have a 30 day shelf life where we're advertising the property locally, regionally, nationally, and globally capturing a much larger audience and getting them to focus on this one property. And so we're able to garner much higher bids and much more excitement and, and, and FOMO for fear of missing out from those buyers because they're focused on buying this one property on a specific day. And so we were able to create this atmosphere that the buyers were so excited and it came down to who clicked the most. We opened the bidding at, at $1 million and uh, in $25,000 increments, the bidders took it all the way up to 2.1, which set a price record for not only for the community, but also for the area for all the comps. And so we, we of course, the family was absolutely thrilled with those results because we were able to capture that that, that excitable audience and get them to, to bid to a price that we would have never comped out at. Right. So uh, did you have that property appraised before it, uh, you went, it went to auction? We comped it the best we could, but it was hard to appraise. It was an original 1960s vintage condition. And so it needed some updating. It needed some love. And I mean, there were, there were some properties that sold in the neighborhood. Uh, the most, most notable was right down the street. It was Elvis Presley's Honeymoon Hideaway, uh, where, where uh, uh, it was, it was five, five houses down from the property. It was a little bit bigger property. And of course, it was a little bit bigger celebrity being Elvis. Well, that property sold for 2.4 million three months before our auction. And so that, of course, was our high watermark that we wanted to reach, um, uh, at least getting over two million. But our valuations were, were in the one mid ones to high ones. Right. The, but again, a, it, it's it's we can we can pontificate and, and try to figure out exactly what we think the property values are. But at the end of the day, it's not up to us. It's the bidders we, determine that. Right. Exactly. What did it sell for, by the way? Uh, 2.1 million. So good. So it was. So very, we were pretty close. We were pretty close to Elvis. Not bad. So we were proud of that one. Not <laughs> bad. You know, it's it, speaking of appraisal, uh, appraisals. Excuse me. Um, you have a another property coming up in Maui, and yes. I was looking at the um, 
the packet that you have. To me, it's like because um, I've saw I've seen one of the other. And there was the last oh, the uh, due diligence packages. Yes. Yeah, the due diligence package, right? And I saw the uh, that you have the appraisal there. So is that yes. is that for people like they they can't get to Maui, but they at least they have an idea. Okay, that house has X amount of dollar value. Again, it was another property that's hard to comp, and it had been on the market for quite a while. Um, and and instead of the seller continually lowering the list price. We wanted to give the buyers some, at least some indication on where we thought the value was, but ultimately it's up to the buyers to determine what that price is. And so with Maui being such a remote destination and, and like, you, like you mentioned, some people aren't able to get to Maui, um, we provide everybody with the, a complete due diligence package. And that due diligence package includes everything that a buyer would normally do after an offer is accepted. We provide that on the front end. So there's a home inspection, there's a survey, there's a plat map, there's homeowners association documents, there's there's tax information, there's a, a title report, there's there's um, everything that you would possibly need to know about the property. We, we include that and we provide that to each and every bidder. That gives them the, the understanding of number one, of what they're buying, and number two, that the, 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 the a bill of health on the property to get, let them understand exactly what they're buying. And so that gives them the reassurance, number one, that they, they know what they're buying. And number two, that, that if they're unable to make it out to Hawaii to look at the property, they've got enough information in front of them to make a sight unseen decision without having to hire their own inspectors and hire their own appraisers and, and go through all of those, those, those steps. And so we hire those, those third-party, highly reputable groups to go through the property and provide us with, with objective information to disclose the, the exact condition of the property. Yeah, fascinating. Um, do you have to go there beforehand? In other words, you have the property in Maui. Did you go there and get everybody organized to say, okay, I want an inspector. Let me call Tom Jones, uh, you know, house inspector. Uh, John, I have to go where the meetings are. And so, you know, whether I'm in the Hamptons or, or in Hawaii or uh, in, in Florida or, or even the, the Caribbean, it's, it's, I have to go to the property to see it so that I understand what Heritage is taking on. Because what, whatever we take on as far as a, a sale, our reputation is associated with it. So we have to make sure that we understand what we're, we're, we're getting what into. Saw, right. What you're right. putting out there in the market. Um, speaking of a recent sale you had uh, recently in Southampton, um, yes. that involved a uh, real estate broker. How do you convince the real estate broker and the owner, or in that case, I think it, they were uh, state owners, right? They own, again, what we're talking about. It was, the, it was a trust. It was a trust that owned the property. Yeah. Right. So um, how do you convince them that let's go with um, Nate? Well, that's a great question. So the, the I'll give you a little backstory on the property. It had been listed for about three years. It came on in uh, October of 2018 at 7.5 million. And from, from the past, over the past three years, the property has systematically dropped its list price. And so it started at 7.5 and then it went down to seven and then it went down to 5.5 and it went down to five and then it went down to 4.5. What's the next logical step, so to speak, if you were going to, if you're still trying to find what the property value was, would be to drop it down to 4 million. Well, the seller had invested more than $7 million into the property when they built it 15, almost 20 years ago. And, you know, they had a valuation that was you know, higher than 4 million. But again, you can have a valuation on your property for, for years and years, but 
ultimately we're waiting for a buyer to come up the driveway and give you an offer for that price. And so the seller realizing that this is the hottest seller's market the Hamptons has ever seen, and now we're at the tail end of it and it still hasn't sold, instead of continuing to drop that list price, why don't we start at a low price and work our way up? Now, the agent that we partnered with was actually the agent that represented a winning bidder at one of our past auctions in East Hampton. We worked with Leslie Reingold. She represented the winning bidder and had such a great experience working with Heritage that it was an easy phone call to give her to call her up and say, you know, we think that this is a great fit for the property. We've been speaking with the trust. We've been speaking with the with the the, the attorneys and the estate, and this is the route we want to go with. Would you be willing to help us represent this property and bring it to market? In, or in mid-September. And she, of course, was excited to do it because she recognizes that you know, for properties like that one that we represented, it has a really narrow market. It was very formal and very ornate and, and incredibly well-decorated, but it was to a very specific taste and to a very specific style that has a limited market. And so she recognized that it would be a great property, a great fit for auction. We put together a local, regional, national, and international marketing campaign uh, we had over 27,000 uh, uh, web views, uh, uh, 27, uh, no, let me think, 2,700 uh, 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 trackers, people who are tracking the bids. We had 200, over 200 inquiries, people that called, uh, picked up the phone and called us to ask us more questions about the property. Uh, we showed the property to over 100 people in, in, in a two-week period and then had over 16 registered bidders for the property. Wow, that's, that's phenomenal, Nate. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but um, uh, if someone had uh, more questions for you, especially uh, uh, with your knowledge and expertise with uh, auctions, how can they uh, get in contact with you? Sure, our website is ha.com for Heritage Auctions, ha.com. Uh, my phone number is 858-337-9568. And my email is nate s at ha.com. That's Nate, N-A-T-E-S at ha.com. Nate, thank you so much for being on the program. This is John Christopher for Real Life Broadcasting right here in the vibrant village of Southampton, New York on the only NPR station on Long Island. Stay tuned to where you are, WLIW 88.3 FM, because we'll be right back with our next guest. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. And today I have with me the Vice President of East Hampton Aviation Association, Catherine Sly. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Hi. Thanks so much again for, for having me on again. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the, your, the time to allow me to come on here and, and speak with you. Well, yeah, I appreciate you coming on, you know, because it, it's been a while. You know, we've been uh, out of commission, so to speak, you know, with the the, uh, the COVID, uh, you know, pandemic here, but uh, now we're back again, we're rocking and rolling. And uh, I want to talk to you about something that's dear to you. But before we do that, can we talk a little bit about you? Where did you grow up? I, I am actually uh, what would be lovingly called a, an Air Force brat. So oh. uh, my father was in the Air Force. He was a pilot. He was a, a Air Force Academy graduate. Um, he did 30 years in the Air Force. So I was raised all over the world on a variety of different Air Force bases uh, while my father served in the military. Which one was your favorite place? Gosh, uh, that'd be <laughs> a tough one. Um, we, we kind of repeated a few places a few times, which was kind of nice. Uh, 
uh, one of the longest places at two different tours was in Zweibrücken, Germany. Um, and it was right on the border of France and Germany. And so it was really, really wonderful because I got to uh, both at a very young age and then in my teen years be exposed to uh, a lot of, you know, different cultures, different languages, different people. Um, and so I, I would probably say that was my favorite just because it really inspired uh, my love of, of, of travel, my love of adventure uh, and of meeting new people. Wow. Did you, while you were there, did you pick up uh, German? I speak a little bit of Deutsch and I speak a little bit of French. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Uh, not better. That's uh, another language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, forget the languages. Let's <laughs> so so okay. So you got out of school. Where and and did you go to school here in the states at when you went to college? Yeah. So uh, by the time we, you know, our one of our last moves back in the military, by the time my father retired, um, we were based in Florida. So I went to school uh, in both Texas and in Florida. Uh, went to law school in Florida. Um, and, uh, after I graduated from law school, I was actually a homicide prosecutor in Miami, uh, for four years, uh, doing mainly homicides, violent felonies and things like that. That must've been exciting. Um, it's one way of putting it, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it was, it was, a, an interesting way to get a lot of really, really intense and good trial experience early on as an attorney. Um, but there's only, in my opinion, so much you can do to, that when you're exposed to pretty much the worst that human beings can do to each other all the time, uh, which is kind of what uh, encouraged me to segue into my current career of, um, of construction, uh, because now I'm building things and making things and making homes for people uh, and making, you know, uh, positive things and impacts on people's lives. Yeah, it must have, uh, you know, on, on the psyche uh, dealing with that, because I remember in, in uh, college, I had a friend who graduated and he later went on to being a, an assistant DA in Philly. And uh, he was happy to get out of that and go into, what did he go into? He went into uh, accidents. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so, and he was a much happier guy when he did that, you know? So, so yeah. anyway, um, how did you get, because you were, your father was in the air force. Is that how you got the bug for wanting to fly? Always. Um, I mean, I, I can't remember a time when I didn't want to fly. Um, even as a small child. Uh, in fact, my mom has on her dresser a picture of me, uh, you know, trying to wear my father's flight helmet. And I must have been maybe three years old and sitting in his <laughs> aircraft. Um, so it's it's always been something I've wanted to do. Um, I had a little bit of, of a, a, a temporary pushback from it when I was a young girl um, in my early teens. I really wanted to be just like dad and fly, you know, jet aircraft, uh, uh, and everything for the military, for the Air Force. And my father, unfortunately, at the time, had to explain to me that um, at that time, women were not allowed to fly jets into combat for the wow. Air Force. Um, and so it kind of, you know, I'd spent my whole childhood being told by my parents, you can do anything you want, you could be anything you want, except for that. You could <laughs> and, be a, a jet pilot. Yeah. And so it kind of it kind of uh, turned me off a little bit for a few years. Um, and and I'm glad to see that that within a few years after that happened, it, the rules did change. And actually, uh, I know a, a woman who uh, is a fairly well-known um, pilot. Uh, she was a F-14 pilot um, and she managed to get in the program just six years younger than me. Wow. Um, and so so it, it happened pretty quickly. Um, so I never had the opportunity to go into the military. 
Um, but, uh, you know, by the time I had kind of gotten into my career, gotten a little more stabilized, uh, I returned back to that, that dream and that desire to, to become a pilot and went out and got my pilot's license. Awesome. Um, did you ever get into a, a jet, a, a jet, in other words, fly in one? No, actually, my, my tastes have changed since then. I think, you know, as, as a young, young, you know, teenager, that, that seemed fun and adventurous, you know, adventurous and, and uh, a thrill. And, you know, now that I'm 50, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm kind of going the other direction. So actually, my tastes have changed that I'm actually enjoying uh, smaller, um, a little bit more aerobatic aircraft. I'm liking I'm currently flying a tailwheel, um, which is very different than a tricycle gear. Uh, it's designed more for like grass strips and short landings and places like that. And so I kind of now have, have shifted into more with the smaller kind of more agile and more sort of fun aircraft. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, do you uh, have you flown down to Florida? Because I know you have an office there, also, correct? Yes. Uh, have yes. You, I, have I, you flown down there? Not commercially. I'm speaking actually. You know, taking uh, uh, the plane and piloting down to Florida. Yeah. We um, last just even last December, uh, we took one of the aircraft down. Me and, and uh, two colleagues of mine. Uh, all, both of them were pilots, and and the three of us uh, flew down to Florida. Um, and it only took us about you know eight hours or so to get down there. Uh, in, in, the, in the bananas that we were flying. And it was actually quite a bit of fun because we made a couple of stops along the way and had some barbecue at St. Simon's Island in Georgia and places like that. So it That's actually cool. was a fun trip. Yeah, we, cool. ended up, we ended up keep going went all the way to Key West. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're kidding. That's great. That's, yeah. that's great. Now, you didn't turn around and fly back again, did you? Or it's not. I like did it. not. Uh, one of the gentlemen I, I was flying with did uh, eventually uh, about a month later bring the bring that bring plane it back. back. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's not like a uh, rent a car where you can just drop off the plane. Right. No, it's yours. <laughs> you got to bring it home. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so let's uh, talk about the East Hampton Airport Association. So who is and what is the East Hampton Airport Association? It's actually the East Hampton Aviation Association. Oh, um, I'm sorry. That's all right. We are a, a group of local pilots. Uh, we're all residents who live out here um, in one form or another. Some some are more seasonal. Some of us like me, you know, are full time. Um, but we all uh, are local pilots. Most of us keep our aircraft at the airport. Um, there are 62 hangars at the airport and over 100 based aircraft at our airport. 62 um, hangars. I wasn't aware. That's quite a bit. Quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So because when you drive it, past there on Daniels Hall, it doesn't seem like that. But that's well, that's, you're only seeing the north hangar section. Uh, there is actually a south hangar section off Industrial uh, Road. That is a whole a whole second section of, of hangars that most people don't realize are there because it's hidden behind the pods. That uh, the pods facility there. Right. So, right. Um, so, yeah. So there's actually, you know, I so said there's, there's over 100 based aircraft at our airport. So, uh, you know, our association is just the local pilots, the local residents. Um, who, who just enjoy flying their aircraft here out of our, you know, 85-year-old airport that has been here, you know, since 1936. Wow. Uh, so, you know, uh, obviously, um, a lot of people, uh, you hear about them complaining about the noise from airplanes and helicopters. How do you address that? I mean, it's a complex issue. There's no one quick answer or, or, or response to that, that question because it is, it's so many different layers. Um, we realize that there are some people who are indeed affected by uh, helicopter noise. Um, those who were under the November route, uh, unfortunately, all of that noise has now been funneled on top of them um, for all the inbound air, all the inbound helicopters come in on the November route. And so pretty much every well, inbound. You say the November. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you say the November route. Is that what you said? 
yes, it's called the November route. It is a designated route that the town uh, in, 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 in connection with a couple other groups like Eastern Region Helicopter Council, um, they have selected and created specific routes uh, for the helicopter to fly in and out of the airport. Um, and there's a couple of, there's, there originally were three routes, the November route, which uh, basically comes along the South shore, then up um, around uh, Southampton over the water there, the Shinnecock cut out over the water and then comes up the power lines uh, into East Hampton airport. Um, that's the November route. The Sierra route goes directly along the shoreline and cuts straight up from the South across Georgia pond into the airport. And then the last one is the echo route, which is across uh, the north side of the North Fork over the water, all the way around Orient Point, then uh, across the water past Gardner's Island, and then comes directly into the airport from the north. Those are the, the three routes. Okay. Now, do uh, do the pilots have a choice of uh, picking the route or is it uh, given to them? Um, the, the, the pilots have, a, the, you're talking just the helicopters. This only yeah, applies exactly. to helicopters. This okay. doesn't apply to fixed wing aircraft at all. Uh, okay. Um, so uh, the, the helicopter pilots um, do have a choice as far as whether they're going to come in by the Echo route or the November route. Um, they can request to come in off the Sierra route, but the problem right now is that the Sierra route is the designated departure route and our air traffic controller was built too short. And so it can't see over the trees or the hangar behind it sufficiently enough to ensure that if you have helicopter both heading in opposite directions at nearly the same altitude, they need to be able to visually acquire and make sure that they are safely separated from each other. Uh, because we don't have a radar system in our air traffic control tower. The tower has elected not to purchase one. Um, so we have no, air, uh, no radar system. And so they need to visually make sure that those two are separated. So sometimes they can come in from the south, the Sierra route, but only if there's no other aircraft, le the uh, helicopter departing that route at the same time. Well, why wouldn't the um, airport itself come up with radar? I would think that would be very beneficial for pilots. Yeah, don't you think that'd be really beneficial? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, 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 so what's so the paving, rationale? What's the so rationale for that? Runway. Have, have you seen runway 1634? It's practically a grass strip right now because we've been begging for it to be paved for oh, four or five years now and the town's abjectly refused to pay oh, so it. So the, now we, we go out there and mow the paved runway every oh week. Oh my goodness. So the town <laughs> is the one that controls the airport basically, correct? Uh, the town is the one that controls it. They are the owner of the airport and they get to decide how much maintenance is done on it or not done on it. Now, you know, so many people are, are uh, voicing saying, let's close the airport, but I'm sure there are benefits to keeping it open. Could you tell us a couple of them? Sure. I mean, there there are, are actually a lot of benefits to having an airport in your, in, in your community. Um, communities all over the country are looking to have airports and bring airports to their community because it provides so many benefits. Our specific airport, um, I can just give you a couple of the top key points. Um, for example, our airport, um, uh, we did a, an economic impact study. I know the town did one too, but the town only looked, there's only looked at just East Hampton Town and an excluded every other hamlet and town and area outside of these specific parameters of East Hampton town, which is such as, you know, Sag Harbor, um, Sagaponic, Southampton, Bridgehampton, Noyak, Watermill, everywhere else. They, they've carved those out as though somehow they weren't important. So we did an economic impact study that actually included the entire community. And our economic impact study showed that it brought in $78 million in revenue into our community every single year wow. with $34 million in salaries to local employees alone. For comparison, 
the Southampton town's annual budget is only $80,000. So it's basically their annual budget every single year is what the airport brings into our community. I'm sure you have um, other benefits to, to add to this. And I'm going to have to have you come back again. Sure. Um, it's, uh, how can, I'm sure, and um, people must have a lot of questions for you. So how could they get in touch with you? Um, the best way to get in touch with with us, um, you know, we've, we just put on our Just Plain Fun Day event again this year, which was incredibly successful. Um, I mean, we had almost 2,500 people come out to it. Um, and so that's probably a good way to, to reach us out, reach out to us through our email there, which is just plain fun H T O at gmail.com. So J U S T P L A N E F U N H T O at gmail.com. Um, that's, that's probably the best way to do it, you know? Um, but our, our main thing that we always want to make sure everybody understands is closing the airport will not make the noise go away. It won't make pollution go away. It will just spread it around more, convert it to Montauk, convert it to wet to Southampton and, and spread it throughout our area. It's, it's closure is not a solution. Right. Okay. Catherine, it's, it's been a delight having you on the program. This is John Christopher for real life broadcasting here in the wonderful village of Southampton, New York on the only NPR station on Long Island, WLIW 88.3. In the meantime, thank you for listening and be sure to have an awesome journey. have been listening to Real Life, the program that talks about the people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond with host John Christopher, who also created the music for Real Life. WLIWFM's Delaney Hafner and Kyle Lynch provide production support. Thank you for joining us for Real Life right here on listener-supported 88.3 WLIWFM Long Island's only NPR station, which you can also find on your favorite streaming apps and at WLIW.org radio.